The Great Prison Tunnel Escape Part 1 The First Attempt This great escape story took place in Richmond, Virginia, at Libby Prison in 1864. Libby Prison was created by the Confederate government during the American Civil War to imprison Union officers. The building was initially a food warehouse, which was converted into a prison in 1861. It contained eight large, low-ceilinged rooms, each 103 feet by 42 feet, or 31 meters by 13 meters. The second and third floors were used to house the prisoners. The windows had bars on them, but no glass. This exposed the prisoners to the elements and increased their discomfort. The prison held 700 prisoners in 1862, but by 1863, the facility far exceeded the maximum capacity of 1,000 prisoners. Mortality rates were high in 1863 and 1864, aggravated by shortages of food and supplies. Due to a lack of sanitation and overcrowding issues and spread of diseases and a high death toll, the prison gained a reputation for its inhumane conditions. The Great Tunnel Escape occurred on the night, February 9th, 1864. I was one of the 109 Union officers who passed through the tunnel and one of the ill-fated 48 that were retaken. I and two companions, Lieutenant Morgan and Lieutenant Watson, were in sight of the Union picket posts when recaptured by the Confederate cavalry. So close to freedom. Let me explain the structure and function of Libby Prison before the great plan to build a tunnel was hatched. Libby Prison sits on Cary Street in Richmond and stands on a hill which descends abruptly to the canal. Its southern wall is divided only by a street and has a vacant lot on the east. The building was freestanding, making it easy to guard the prison securely with a small force and keep every door and window in full view. As an additional measure of safety, prisoners were not allowed on the ground floor. The exception was that they were permitted to use the first floor of the middle section for a cook room in the daytime. The interior embraced nine large warehouse rooms with eight feet from each floor to ceiling. The abrupt slant of the hill gives the building an additional story on the south side. The whole building basically has three sections, and these were originally separated by heavy walls. There were doors 
through the walls of the two upper floors, which was the prisoners' quarters, and they were permitted to mingle freely with each other. However, there was no communication between the three large rooms on the first floor. Beneath these floors were three cellars of the same dimensions as the rooms above them, and like them, divided from each other by massive walls. For easy understanding, let's just designate these as the east, the middle, and the west cellars. As a rule, the prisoner, by the time he reached Libby, found himself devoid of anything except his own dirty clothes. At night, the six large lofts were lit by a single candle set in a bottle, or an old Borden's condensed milk can, or even sometimes a petrified loaf of cornbread. The candle would stay on until the guards shouted, Lights out. The light would be extinguished by throwing a boot at the candle or whatever else was handy. The sleepers covered the six floors, lying in ranks, head to head, and foot to foot. For the general good and to preserve something like military precision, these ranks were subdivided into convenient sleep squads under the charge of a captain. The captain was invested with authority to see that every man lay spoon-fashion, which was especially beneficial during cold weather. No consideration of personal convenience was permitted to interfere with the general comfort of the sleep squad. Thus, when the hard floor got too painful on the right side, especially by the thin men, everyone moved as a formation. The captain would give the command, Attention, squad number four, prepare to spoon. One, two, spoon. And the whole squad flopped over on the left side. The first floor on the west of the building, was used by the Confederates as an office and for sleeping quarters for the prison officials. A guarded stairway led from this to Milroy's room just above it. The middle room was shut off from the office by a heavy wall. This room, known as the kitchen, had two stoves in it. One of the stoves stood about ten feet from the heavy door that opened onto the Cary Street sidewalk, and behind the door was a fireplace. The room also contained several long wood tables with permanent seats attached, like picnic tables. The floor was constantly soaked by several defective and overworked water faucets and a leaky trough. A stairway without banisters 
led up on the southwest end of the floor to the Chickamauga Room, so called because it was chiefly occupied by Chickamauga prisoners. In the fall of 1863, the guard who had formerly been placed at this stairway at night to prevent prisoners from entering the kitchen had been withdrawn. This was due to the guard being unable to sleep on the wet and damaged floor. Early in October of 1863, the large ground floor room east of the kitchen was used and it was known as the hospital. Although it contained a large number of cots, they were never occupied. An apartment had been made at the north or front of the room, which served as a doctor's office and laboratory. Like the rooms adjoining it on the west, this room had a large door opening on Carey Street, which was heavily bolted and guarded on the outside. The arrival of the Chickamauga prisoners greatly crowded the upper floors. This compelled the Confederate guards to board up a small portion of the east cellar at its southeast corner as an additional cookroom. They placed several large cauldrons in a crudely built furnace. For a short period, the prisoners were allowed down there in the daytime to cook. A stairway led from this cellar to the room above, which subsequently became the hospital. This was the state of things when Colonel Thomas Rose arrived at the prison on October 1st, 1863. He was initially taken prisoner at the Battle of Chickamauga about ten days before he arrived to Libby Prison. On his way to Richmond, Virginia, he escaped from his guards in Weldon, North Carolina. But after a day's wandering about the pine forests with a broken foot, he was retaken by Confederate cavalry and sent to Libby Prison. From the hour of his coming, a means of escape became his constant and eager study. With this purpose in view, he made a careful and detailed survey of the entire premises. From the windows of the Upper East, or Gettysburg Room, he could look across the vacant lot on the east. From there, he could see the yard between, as well as two adjacent buildings which faced the canal and Carey Street. The open yard between the prison and these buildings was about 50 feet, or 15 meters. Although he didn't know it at that moment, in the near future, he would oversee the construction of a tunnel that would go under this yard to the buildings he was looking at. On one or two occasions, Colonel Rose observed workmen descending from the middle of the south side street into a sewer running through its center 
he concluded that this sewer must have various openings to the canal, both to the east and west of the prison. From the south windows, he also saw that the canal ran parallel to the James River. These two streams of water were separated by a low and narrow strip of land. This strip of land periodically disappeared when heavy rain came or when spring floods swelled the river and poured into the cellars of Libby Prison. The north portion of the cellars contained a large quantity of loose packing straw, covering the floor to an average depth of two feet. This straw afforded shelter, especially at night, to a large colony of rats, and this gave the place the name Rat Hell. When flood water poured into Libby Prison, rats poured out. They would come out from the lower doors and windows of the prison and head for dry land amid the cheers of the prisoners in the upper windows. In one afternoon's inspection of this dark end, or rat hell, Rose encountered a fellow prisoner, Major Hamilton. A friendship followed, and the two men entered at once upon the plan of gaining their liberty. They agreed that the most feasible scheme was a tunnel. It would begin in the rear of the little kitchen apartment at the southeast corner of Rat Hell. Without haste, they secured a broken shovel and two knives and began operations. Within a few days, the Confederate guards decided on certain changes in the prison for the greater security of their captives. A week later, the cookroom was abandoned, the stairway nailed up, and the prisoners sent to the upper floors. All communication with the east cellar was now cut off. This was a great misfortune, for this apartment was the only possible base of successful tunnel operations. Colonel Rose abandoned the tunnel plan and now began to study other practical means of escape. He spent night after night examining the posts and watching the movements of the guards on the four sides of Libby. One very dark night, during a howling storm, Rose and Hamilton bumped into each other once again. They were both skulking around in an area of the prison, which was seldom visited by prisoners. For an instant, the impenetrable darkness made it impossible for either to determine whether he'd met a friend or a foe. Neither had a weapon, yet each involuntarily felt for one. Each made ready to spring at the other's throat until a flash of lightning revealed their identities. Curiously, they had bumped into each other because both had the same idea at the same time. 
of trying to escape from this area of the prison. Both were using the darkness and the noise of the storm to mask their escape from a window of the upper west room. The window overlooked a platform that ran along the west outer wall of the prison. Each had hoped to reach the ground and elude the guards, whom they figured would be sheltered further away to get out of the storm. The flashes of lightning not only revealed their identities to each other, but it also showed them the hazards of this plan. Instead, Rose suggested that they try the entrance from the south side street to the middle cellar. He had often noticed the entrance and exit of workmen at that point. He believed that if an entrance could be created to this cellar, it would afford them the only chance of slipping past the guards. He hunted up a bit of pine wood, and he whittled it into a sort of wedge. The two men then went down into the dark, vacant kitchen directly over this cellar. With the wooden wedge, Rose pried a floorboard out of its place and made an opening large enough to let himself through. He'd never been in this middle cellar and was ignorant if it was occupied by Confederates or workmen. He next needed a way to safely descend into the cellar room. He wrenched off one of the long boards that formed a table seat in the kitchen. He found that this board was long enough to touch the cellar floor and protrude a foot or so above the kitchen floor. He now easily descended down the board, leaving Hamilton to keep watch above. The storm still raged fiercely, and the faint beams of a street lamp revealed a guard slowly pacing his beat and carrying his musket. Creeping softly along the cellar floor, Colonel Rose now saw that what he had thought was a door was simply an opening to the street. Further inspection disclosed that there was only one guard on the south side of the prison. Standing in the dark shadow, Rose could easily have touched this man with his hand as he repeatedly passed him. He groped about in the cellar to figure out what was in the south and north ends of this cellar. He figured out that the south end was used for a carpenter shop, and the north end was partitioned off into a series of small cells with padlocked doors. It was later learned that these prison cells were used for the confinement of prisoners who tried to escape, runaway slaves, and Union spies under sentence of death. Currently, though, these prison cells were empty and unguarded. Rose finally returned to the kitchen, 
where Hamilton was patiently waiting for him. The very next day, a rare good fortune befell Rose after the arrival of some welcome goods came to the prison. Several bales of clothing and blankets had been sent by the Union government to the prisoners, a number of whom had already frozen to death. One of the prisoners snagged a rope which had held together one of the bales and gave it to Colonel Rose. The rope was nearly a hundred feet long, an inch thick, and almost new. The following night, Rose and Hamilton were once again in the kitchen. As soon as all was quiet, Rose fastened his rope to one of the supporting posts, took up the floor plank as before, and both men descended to the middle cellar. They were a little disappointed to discover that there were now two guards instead of just one on the south side. On this, and for several nights, they made stealthy visits to this cellar. During these visits, Rose found and secured several tools, including a broad axe, a saw, two chisels, several files, and a carpenter's square. One dark night, both men went down and tried their luck at sneaking past the guards. Rose succeeded in passing the first guard, but unluckily, he was seen by the second one. That was just a tasty nibble of my newest bonus episode. You can peek in the episode notes to learn more about it. If you are a Silk Plus member, then you'll find the full-length version of this bonus episode waiting for you in the bonus podcast. If you're not a Silk Plus member, then you can easily become one by using the link in the episode notes or by going to silkpodcasts.com. You are now just a small hop away from accessing this bonus episode and over 400 additional episodes, all free for a limited time. That there are a lot of episodes to feed your restless brain squirrels. Nom nom, nom nom nom.